0: I'm not aware of anyone ever successfully doing hackers and winning, like especially if they're in another country. At best, U.S. law enforcement, like the FBI maybe, would do some kind of joint investigation and prosecution with the jurisdiction where that person's located, but the amount of times that happens is very limited by resources and it's like, you know, only the biggest and like most notorious cybercrimes usually are being address that way.
1: GM, GM, everyone. My name is Tagachi, the host of Scraping Bits, and today I'm with a special guest, Peter. How's it going? It's going well, Tagachi. Thank you for
0: having me today.
1: Thanks for coming on. Just for some context, who are you and
0: what do you do? I'm a lawyer and I'm based in New York. I uh, have a small law firm called Schoolage Peters, Rosati and Fox LLP. Mm-hmm. Been open since 2019, and we focus quite a bit on technology law issues, including Web3 and crypto stuff.
1: How did you get into the whole law thing? Were you doing it? Were you always interested in, it, or did it just kind of come out of the blue?
0: I was going to college back in 2001 in Manhattan, and mm. I was uh, studying to become a business major. And I took a business law class by coincidence as part of the requirements, and mm-hmm. I found uh, I found law and the format of law to be something that I was just really interested in and happened to be good at. Also, the um, mm-hmm. you know, the format of rules, exceptions, learning those things, and then applying them to a fact pattern to get usually two different positions that are kind of adverse to each other. So I took that class, did really well in it. Mm-hmm. And then I switched my major to political science because I wanted to take more kind of like law-related classes um, and applied to law school. Went to law school at night for four years, and then I graduated and started working at a firm in Manhattan called Cahill, Gordon, and rindell where we handled some securities fraud cases, um, other types of financial services matters. We worked on anti-money laundering investigations. Uh, we did some mm-hmm. First Amendment stuff. And uh, a little bit of technology-related stuff, but not a ton at that point. Did that for about three years. And then I got an opportunity to work for a federal judge in Brooklyn. So I went and took that opportunity. And that was great. Learned a lot about what litigation looks like from the inside. You know, when you're a judge and you get presented with two opposing positions and you have to decide who's right, who's going to win and why in a way that, isn't too, uh, assailable on appeal because people lose, you know, they're unhappy and they want to second guess you in appellate courts. So I did that. And then after I finished up that clerkship, that was a one year position. I, I was hired to work as the first associate at a technology patent infringement firm, which was where I really kind of started to get deeper into technology in a professional context, mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of the patents that we were litigating, were um, patents on things like interfaces for electronics, uh, compression system, operating system compression, uh, payment systems. We had these 2 trials in Texas related to patents that were for a method of um, activating gift cards. This is like late 1990s technology where (laughs) retailers, they used to put live gift cards on the shelf that had value on them. And people would go And just like steal them right and then go use them at different locations so (laughs) the guy who yeah the guy who the guy who got these patents he he said well you know what you should do is you should have the card sitting there on a shelf and then when you bring it to the point of sale for the cash register you swipe it through at that point it's assigned an account number and that account is given value based on the amount of money someone gave at the point of sale Mm -hmm. which is pretty, pretty obvious, right? Pretty straightforward. So he gets these two patents and proceeds to, you know, for the next 10 years, just like beat all these different companies over the head with them and get all these settlements because everybody at that point, you know, by like the early 2000s had started doing that with gift cards using point of sale activations. So he made, I think, $50 million of those patents. And wow. then he sued a bunch of retailers, all of whom... We're using um, this one kind of intermediary to activate their gift card programs. And we, a law firm I was working at at the time, defended them. So we had a trial for Barnes & Noble. We defended Barnes & Noble. We won that trial. Nice. And then the next on the list was uh, JCPenney. And we won that trial. And then after that, the plaintiff just like fell apart and stopped trying the cases. And then we invalidated his patents in the federal circuit. Well, so put an end to that that run <laughs> that he had there.
1: <laughs> put an end to the run. Oh no.
0: Wow. Yeah. But that was cool. And in the process of doing that, I learned a lot about payments. I learned about, you know, payment card information. I mm-hmm. learned about all the different bank rails that, you know, point of sale transactions go through to get to like Visa or the bank that issued the card. That was pretty interesting. So I did the patent infringement litigation thing for a few years. And then in 2015, I left and started my own firm, which at the time was called Schoolage Kleiman LLP. I was with a friend of mine from law school, Josh Kleiman. And in 2016, he started representing the Nano project, which was a token that had been issued in like 2014, I think for the first time. And they needed some help setting up uh, different entities, and you know, figuring out if they wanted to use any kind of intellectual property protection on their protocol, that mm-hmm. type of thing. And you know, down the road a little ways, their token had been listed on this exchange called BitGrail, which was based in Italy. And BitGrail was hacked by people who are unknown to this day. You know, I think there was like a 170 million dollars in tokens stolen off the exchange and yeah gone without a trace yes and the the response by some was to sue the developers of the the token protocol along with the exchange but you know so my firm, at that point, Josh had left my firm and became the general counsel of Nano, some of the Nano entities. So he hired my firm to defend the securities class action, which was filed by some crypto lawyers in New York. And so began a multi-year representation of the Nano project in oh, numerous wow. securities legations. Yeah. Which what we have, eventually won.
1: How does like a whole multi-year kind of thing go like what's the process of of that basically? Like multiple years must be very lengthy. And if you're taking on multiple clients, then how do you kind of keep it fresh in mind? Well,
0: litigation progresses very slowly. So, you know, any lawyer has any lawyer who does litigation anyway for transactions usually has anywhere between like 15 and 30 clients at the same time. And usually there's some kind of short term need for one or two of those clients, but it never, do they all have some kind of pressing short term need all at the same time. Right. So a case gets filed is a document called the complaint, which sets forth the basics of the claims, the facts that are underlying the claims, that type of thing. You get that and you then have some period of time to respond to it. You can either, attack it and say even if what they're saying is true in here they don't win because xyz reasons you can you can answer it and say we deny everything and you know we're going to we're going to proceed in this case and make our defenses and summary judgment or a trial and you know it's just every time something is supposed to happen in a litigation there's like a long period of time preceding it they're not they're not quick moving things usually so The first case was filed, I think, in 2018. And we kind of, you know, took like a halfway position in that case where we were gonna move to dismiss, but we ended up reaching a settlement pretty early in the case, um, which was supposed to be confidential, but the plaintiff's lawyers then told everyone about it in the second case that they filed. (laughs) (laughs) So they settled the first case. And we thought, okay, great. That's it. Now we can move on. But we didn't settle it on a class-wide basis. So, so it was a class action. It was supposed to be a class action. But um, we only settled with one person. So the plaintiff's lawyers said, well, let's go find another person. So they found another person in California this time. I think they thought they would have a better venue in California, maybe be more favorable. So they filed in California in the Northern District, which... Which by the way is a pretty a pretty famous and well traveled technology law jurisdiction because of all the Silicon Valley companies that are based there. So we had the case, I think this is in twenty twenty nineteen. It was about a year after the settlement they filed this other case. And mm. This case, obviously, the client was not going to settle because the client was like, "Well, if I settled with them once and they sue us <laughs> again, you know, like why? Why are we going to settle this time around?" So we fought the case really hard. We made two motions to dismiss. Um, we made one motion. I think it was granted largely in part, but a few claims survived. Mm-hmm. Then we made a second motion, and I think we got them down to like one claim, but the judge just wouldn't dismiss the entire case. Then it came time for them to certify the class, which is when they have to meet the requirements of getting a class action certified. In American law, the class action is a very powerful procedural tool Mm -hmm. that allows basically one law firm to bring the claims of numerous people, hundreds, thousands of people in one case. And accordingly, the courts and the law don't just let anyone file a class action. You have to show that there's a lot of people, that their claims are all the same, that they all have the same interests and so on and so forth. So, you know, we did what we could do next, which was to oppose their class certification. And we prevailed. We beat them on class certification. They were only going to have maybe like six or seven plaintiffs. And, you know, the case just pretty much fell apart for them after that. And, you know, you could see it on the docket. It was called, I think the last version of it was called Auto versus Nano Foundation or something like that. I just want to take a brief digression, Bigashi, to, to say that anything that I'm saying on this podcast episode is uh, strictly my opinion. It's not the position or opinion of my clients or my law firm. So anyway, that said. So, so yeah, yeah. we, uh, yeah. <laughs> so... Just making sure so, so we defended Nano. Um, we we beat the the plaintiff's lawyers mm-hmm. in several cases for them. And the whole process took between I think twenty nineteen and like mid twenty twenty one, we were wrapping up that one. Yeah. And you know, very little, if you look if you looked at it from the outside, very little had happened in the case. They filed a complaint, there were two motions to dismiss and a motion for class serve. but it took years and that's just the way it is always.
1: You basically created your own law firm. And how does like one do that? How do you go from working for someone and then deciding I'm going to start my own law firm and then kind of scaling and, you know, becoming bigger and bigger?
0: Well, once you have a law license, it's really easy to start your own law practice. The barriers to entry are very low. Um, The biggest barrier to entry is confidence and, you know, risk taking, you know, to, to start up a law firm, all you really need is a website, an email address, a malpractice policy a phone number and, you know, accounting software and like payments, Mm. you know, the ability to accept payments, a bank account, you know, the, the confidence or the risk averseness of thinking that you're going to go out there and be able to get clients, Mm -hmm. you know, agree on what services you're going to provide to them, go out and provide the services, get paid and not like completely make a fool of yourself or get sued for malpractice that's, I think, what is the real thing that it takes. I had, I had helped in my prior firm, the patent firm, I had helped the guy who established that firm, start that firm from scratch. So, oh,
1: okay. So you already kind of had experience.
0: Yeah. I'd seen the inside. I knew kind of like all the different account subscriptions you needed. And, you know, like I knew how to draft an engagement letter. I knew how to set up pretty much
1: everything you needed to do the website, whatever. So how, how do you like, discover clients and kind of keep them coming back well obviously you you do good work for them but I guess finding the initial clients would be kind of tough right
0: it's not something like I didn't I didn't take clients from my old firm I didn't have anyone hanging around waiting for me to open my own law firm so I just went out there you know I started my firm I opened up I opened up shop and I started talking to everyone I knew everyone I'd worked with in the Mm past, all my law school classmates friends relatives anyone and yeah the work started to come in and a lot of it initially was intellectual property work because right. everybody knew that i had worked at a patent firm and so they were sending me stuff like copyright trademark patent, patent mm. type work the copyright and trademark stuff i could really take up because it's pretty easy to do at a smaller firm um patent stuff is like far more demanding uh from a resource perspective. So I wasn't really able to continue doing that so much. But, okay. And then because of that, you know, I because of the copyright and trademark stuff, I just started to get into software related stuff on that basis. I also met a, a lawyer in Silicon Valley who like me had a small practice, but he was way more, you know, way more into it. Like he'd been doing it for 25 years or something right, by the time yeah. I met him. And He'd been a general counsel of technology companies and him and I defended a, like a brand that was owned by Oracle, uh, an enterprise resources planning software company in a number of litigations and a couple other companies too. And so in the process of that, that was another like couple year process where we defended this company in you know, a few different matters. And I learned a lot about how they develop software and how they sell software, mm-hmm. how they modify software, enterprise software. And then, you know, you go out and meet people. Like I was at a, I was at consensus in New York city in 2018. And yeah. I just sat down at a table to take out my computer and check some email and I started talking to someone. And, uh, she was working in business development at a company that, um, spun off from a hedge fund, It was like an asset management platform this hedge fund had developed themselves and they thought it was a really good one. So they spun it off and they had just separated from the company. So they were looking for counsel. So I ended up meeting them through her a chance encounter at a crypto conference. Mm. And
1: uh, they went on to be a great client for a long time. So it's really just like networking and word of mouth, putting yourself exactly. out there, just with anything really, right? Yeah. I Also, uh,
0: you know, what really helps too is getting your name in the newspaper. And I did that quite a uh, bit. Oh, yes. Yeah. So are you familiar with the Wu-Tang Clan? I am. Are you aware that they made a secret one copy album in like 2014? I'm not. <laughs> well, so they did. And uh, they used the artwork of this artist named Jason Koza in in the book that came with the album. Mm-hmm. And it was famously sold to Martin Shkreli, this like pharmaceutical hedge fund guy who um, had gotten into some trouble with the government. At this point he hadn't gotten into trouble with the government yet, but he was right. notorious for raising the price of this AIDS drug by like 5,000%. So he had a journalist over to look at the album and the journalist took some pictures of the book and put them online Mm-hmm. And Jason Koza found out that his images were used. So he hired me and I sued Martin Shkreli and like the people who produced the album for the Wu-Tang clan for copyright infringement. That made the news that was in a bunch of papers. Mm-hmm. And later on, I ended up actually becoming friends with one of the guys that I sued. Oh, wow. and, um, <laughs> yeah, through, through my relationship with him, I just kind of stayed involved in the album. And uh, when yeah when the government seized it, so the U S government arrested Martin Shkreli for securities fraud. This is like 2019. I can't remember exactly what year. And they seized the album. And then, uh, I started working with some anonymous parties to buy the album from the government and oh. sell it to, Ple- to Pleaser Dow, the famous digital collective. Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that also made the papers and, uh, that's, that's good for business development and oh, yeah. generation, I would say. Yeah.
1: Quite interesting. I guess to touch on like intellectual property, from, from your perspective as a lawyer, how do companies keep their IP? Let's say they hire someone, right? And they're trying to build their brand or like a startup, but they have a really innovative idea and they don't want to leak it. But obviously there's always an intrinsic risk of hiring, I guess. How can you kind of prevent that as much as possible?
0: So the best way to prevent it is to give access to as few people as possible to what, like, really is the most important IP. Um, right. But stepping back from that, you kind of have to assess, like, what types of intellectual property is this company going to generate? What can we protect with copyright, trademark, and trade secret protection or patent protection? And what can we not protect that way, and how do we minimize the risk of it just being exploited somehow? I do that pretty frequently. I work with a lot of startups, and you know, a lot of times we are trying to figure out like you know, people usually jump to patent right away. They're like, "Can I patent this?" And with software, a lot of times the answer is no. You got to copyright it, or it's just a trade secret, and you have to really kind of minimize access to like the code base and whatever. Mm -hmm. so kind of modulize as much as possible exactly yeah i mean the the process of like gaming out you know what are we going to make and what type of ip is it if anything Mm -hmm. is the most important part and then once you have that figured out being flexible and responsive to how things change
1: right got you what about like ndas as well because i mean like you can write and sign an nda right but You don't know if they're breaking or not unless something leaks, right?
0: Yeah. So stuff that's not
1: copyrightable. So when you copyright
0: something, the cat's out of the bag. You have to send a specimen to the Library of Congress uh, so it's publicly available. You can't hide it. Same thing with patents. When things are just proprietary, so you have like a secret list of clients or some algorithms that you can't copyright and people have to use it for work. Yeah. You want to use non-disclosure agreements, um, you know, proprietary information, ownership clauses and contracts, things like that. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, it's not a certainty that those promises will be honored by your employees. They might go work for a competitor and leak everything. And then you're just in a position of, you know, trying to minimize the damage that that causes. Actually, one of the, one of the most interesting cases I ever worked on was at K.L. Gordon, where uh, a bunch of executives from Starwood had been lured away to work at Hilton and Uh they stole like entire hard drives of all (laughs) the proprietary (laughs) information yeah like so much stuff that starwood had developed like all their terms with all the hotel owners all their branding guidelines plans for new hotels like everything so we just had to sue hilton and sue those executives and just try to claw it all back and you know reach a settlement and Went pretty well for Starwood. We ended up prevailing, but um, yeah,
1: that was just what
0: it came down to.
1: So, like, you have this whole enterprise just stolen from the inside, and then I guess, does the money even cut like make up for the losses though that you make in the when suing them?
0: It's hard to say. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, the, we reached a resolution, and I think everyone walked away from from it feeling like there was finality and like there had been right. redress for the the wrongs that were done, but. The biggest part, like, the biggest risk of that case was that these executives who were in charge of the W brand were going to launch a competitor to the W hotel for Hilton that was going to call the Denizen. And yeah. we, we put a stop to that. Like, that was basically the big... That would have been, like, the big loss, I think, for Starwood. Um, right. So we, we stopped that Deniz Tracks, and that was, I guess, like, the, the win
1: for Starwood there. There's always, like, loopholes as well. Like, they could just get a friend... To open it up instead, right? Or is that not really possible? They wouldn't have been able to, but I mean, with with uh,
0: you know things like software and computer code, yeah, oftentimes it's, it's kind of a lot harder to see what's happening. It's it's more yeah, hidden. Yeah, private view. Yeah. So it's it's just difficult. You know, the best thing you can possibly do if you're in the position of expending a lot of resources to develop intellectual property and code and stuff is to give it to as few people as possible. You know, really yeah. try to. Tie people's hands in terms of what they can do after they leave your company. You know, like you can't really use non compete. You can't stop someone from
1: working at, say, like another
0: code audit company or whatever.
1: Yeah, but um, I mean, they can be like can get put themselves in a like anonymous, like another account, basically, or like in web pre at least. Just completely making a new account work for someone else. Pretty much, yeah,
0: yeah. And then you're kind of limited to your ability to find that person and sue them and get a judgment against them,
1: which is like, you know, once, once you're in court, you basically already lost. That's the way I look at it. Interesting. And, and what yeah. makes like, what, what's the differential factor of winning a court case versus losing one? So how can you kind of set yourself up for kind of winning without leaking your alpha? Of course.
0: No, there's no alpha really. There's no alpha. I mean, the way you can set yourself up to win is to just be cautious in your, in your activities and your contracts with people, mm. you know, yeah, make sure that if someone's accessing like code or algorithms or right. just proprietary information that's not public, that you know who's accessing it. It's only a few people. You have evidence that they're accessing it when they're accessing it. Mm. You have controls in place that show you if someone's downloading large files. You just use like all the kind of like best practices and security, like cybersecurity protocols that you can use. Um, and mm-hmm. then you have a good contract. You know, good contract terms in place a clear contract, um, a contract that makes someone personally responsible if possible. Like you don't want people contracting with you through shell companies that have no assets. And you got to also kind of think about where people are. You know, if someone is in mm-hmm. a small country in Eastern Europe with like not a greatly developed judicial system and you have to sue them there or you have to try to go enforce a
1: judgment against them there, are you going to be able to? Maybe, maybe not, Right. I think like North Korea or Russia performing hacks you can't really access the people doing the hacks kind of just like it's a, stuck with it yeah
0: it's a huge problem yeah I've had that I've had that problem with my clients before where one of my clients is a, a company that hosts like very large conventions in Las Vegas mm-hmm. and other cities around the world. And their members were getting these scam emails where every time there was an event that was going to happen, there were these like companies that would try to sell them room block space at hotels or would try to sell them lists of event attendees mm-hmm. that they could supposedly use for B2B marketing. And uh, yeah, they were committing trademark infringement because they were basically sending emails that seemed like they were coming from my client. And so, you know, it took me a really long time, but I eventually traced all these companies back to India and to citizens of like Bangalore and um, Calcutta or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, once we figured out that they were in India, we were like, kind of stopped in our tracks in terms of enforcing US trademark law, because... We're just not going to realistically go to India and like hire a law firm and, you know, enforce a judgment against someone in India. It's just like, take a really long time. It would be really expensive. It would probably, you know, not necessarily be that effective. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of countries around the world that people can operate out of that will you know, not really lend themselves to enforcing like US intellectual
1: property laws. Even with Web3 and like blackouts as well, that might even become quite difficult if they're in, you know, one of these countries and, you know, they're anonymous. Well, I guess everyone's anonymous to some degree. But yeah, I wonder how that whole process goes. Like if someone were to do a blackout, um, let's say they're like a teenager coming out of high school or something, and they didn't really know anything mm-hmm. to do with law or think they're immune and just do it, right? they How does that kind of process happen? They just get tracked and then what if they're on the run? Uh,
0: I mean, like in terms of civil law, you know, I'm not aware of anyone ever successfully doing hackers and winning, like, especially if they're in another country. At best, U.S. law enforcement, like the FBI, maybe, would do some kind of joint investigation and prosecution with the Mm -hmm. jurisdiction where that person's located. Mm -hmm. But... The amount of times that happens is very limited by resources and it's like you know only the biggest and like most notorious cyber crimes usually are being addressed that way there's just so much stuff that falls through the cracks because yeah people are offshore if you can even find out where they are Mm. and the means of the legal system to actually address that type of stuff for like just regular companies are incredibly limited
1: Right. Like someone could be using Tor and then Tails, like a virtual box, you know, VPN, proxy serve, all that kind of stuff and kind of perform the hack. And it looks like you'll, you'll basically have to trace them somehow. <laughs> uh, it'd take ages, right? Unless they kind of expose themselves during the process in some way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you see with ransomware, right? Like ransomware um,
0: attackers, they, they just, start They're not stopped. Like they just get away with it forever. Um, Once in a while, they get arrested or whatever if they like do something really heinous, like, you know, encrypting all the files of a hospital where people are like dying. But uh, for the most part, I think that ransomware attackers just, you know, they kind of operate with impunity. Like they don't really
1: get caught. And yeah, it's a big problem. So the ransomware attack operations, like the. They're basically immune, right? Yeah, they're just, they're difficult in the first place to
0: detect and figure out where they're coming from. And um, if you're just like a mid sized company that gets ransomed for a few hundred thousand dollars, you can go to law enforcement and tell them about it. They may or may not do something. And if you want to find the attackers and sue them in a civil case, like you might as well just forget about it. It's it's not going to happen, probably.
1: Oh. Interesting. So, like all these little small hacks on blockchain as well, like let's say twenty grand for fifty grand, people aren't really noticing. I, I even I actually just follow this one guy that tweets about every hack, and they're like these small ones or like ten grand or something. You can count them as like long tail, MEV. I guess it's hard hmm. to like classify that as well. But then, like people don't even care. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of funny in a way, um, like these small yeah. articles. I mean, I think the victims probably
0: get very upset, but then quickly come to understand that, like, what are their options to make it right? I mean,
1: yeah. not Especially good options. Small. Like, it, yeah. the option to just, like, try and trace the... I guess it's, it's all dependent on the resources and how much is at stake. So I guess for, you know, someone that just lost 10 grand through a contract, like, are you really going to try and investigate and try and find this person you know, spend all this resources, hiring a law firm all this time just to find 10 grand. And they're usually like, no, it's not really worth it, right?
0: Yeah, you're not going to net anything. You'll end up spending, you know, five or six times that to even probably not figure out who the person was that hacked. You'll just um, lose more. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's called throwing throwing good money after bad. It's like money you've lost and you're just going to lose more money trying to get back that money.
1: Mm, yeah, it's quite interesting. So it, it really comes down to it is it worth pursuing? And I guess, how do you determine if it's worth pursuing? I mean, yeah, I guess it's just a dollar amount, right? Like, I would say
0: sometimes, probably like 10% of the time, the people who did the attack have made some mistake or left something behind that you can find to track them. But, you know, unless you're talking about millions of dollars, it's not gonna be worth it. And like, even if you find them, what are the chances that they still have the funds, or that you can get the funds back? Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. You got to be really cautious with protocols you use, and like what what
1: accounts you keep your funds on. Mm. For sure. Yeah. So so many security flaws. I mean, there's so many contracts out there. There's even like there's got to be at least like minimum one percent of all contracts out there got security flaws. And then you even see the the big ones like Curve, like that recently got exploited. Um. So yeah, it's just. You're basically just gonna look at the code to make sure you're not getting rugged in anywhere but i mean like that's horrible for retail users as well it's they're not going to be able to just look at the code. It's, it's all up in the air for them yeah yeah it's kind of the same
0: with web too though um you know like social media platforms oh yeah yeah data leaks platform you know, like cash app or excel whatever um, you know, I think people at this point are used to being rugged, like, one way or another. So. <laughs> they have a tolerance. But, but yeah, but crypto does have a bit of a worse reputation for that and DeFi, so.
1: Yeah, when you think of crypto, it's just NFT and rugs, basically. And <laughs> pump and dumps. Exactly. <laughs> but I mean, like, they, they always have some trace at the end, right? Oh, I guess if they're not doing OTC or, I guess, like, a tornado cash thing, then they're always going to have some kind of trace with like extracting the money into fiat you'd think yeah I mean it did kind of surprise me
0: initially that there were so many uh, rugs in crypto and people couldn't like trace the assets somewhere because blockchain and distributed ledgers are obviously set up to create like a huge trail of where the money goes but I guess that the promise of that feature of the technology hasn't really like kept up with people's ability to get around it
1: yeah maybe in the I mean since it's always there maybe people are in the like in the future, once the technology kind of like established itself a bit more, people go back and check all the hacks and finally get these people. It should be quite interesting with like ZK as well, though, because then you also have anonymous hacks at that point. And then how do you know where my money's going? Yeah, ZK is pretty interesting.
0: It's like kind of uh, another like fascinating evolution of blockchain and Web3 technology.
1: That, mm-hmm. uh, who knows how it'll play out eventually. Regarding like the law firm. How do you kind of run a successful one? And what kind of, even if you take a loss in court, right? How do you bounce back? Does that kind of ruin your reputation a whole bunch? Yeah, I guess how do you become successful, quote unquote? Well, you know, loss in
0: court, I think it depends on what the loss resulted from. Because when you're in court, you're dealing with a third party that makes decisions that you don't have any control over. So yeah. you can do your best. You can read all the cases and, and cite all the right case law and, you know, do your best and still end up with um, an irrational decision by the judge or a jury or whatever. So that's tough. I mean, if you've done something really stupid, like miss an important case or fail to depose a witness who has critical information, mm-hmm. you know, then you kind of deserve to have a bad reputation, honestly. But if if the loss is because of, circumstances beyond your control then Mm -hmm. it's like not necessarily looked upon badly but you know in litigation it's just important to be thorough have a a thorough investigation of the facts of the case make sure that you're talking to all the right people make sure that you really understand the legal issues and all the case law that bears on them and all the regulations Mm -hmm. and make sure that you you know, keep an eye on the deadlines and you're not caught in having to scramble to file something hastily that's not done the right way. And you should be as successful as anyone can be if you do those things. We also do a lot of transactions. So cap raises, uh, setting up entities, setting up mm-hmm. offshore structures, you know, commercial contract, contracts with vendors, asset mm-hmm. purchases, and to be successful in those things, you know, it kind of comes down to giving the clients what they need with a high quality and not dragging transactions out and making people lose deals because you're like over negotiating points or mm. you know being unreasonable that stuff it's not that important so yeah that covers the litigation and transaction sides
1: mm, gotcha and, and i guess how do you separate yourself from i guess another lawyer and make like be better than them in, in some way Um, like the average lawyer, I guess, you know, how do you, how do you stand out from that?
0: I mean, to some extent, I guess it's kind of being on top of the industries that you're serving. So, you know, for example, with all the technology stuff that I work on from a legal perspective, I also have uh, a lot of interaction with the day-to-day operations in a lot of those companies because I'm sometimes like working in management or even the principal or an owner of some of the companies like the software development companies. Mm -hmm. Um, So I understand very well, like, how these companies come about, how they kind of get up to speed, how they operate, how they sell things, how they buy things, whatever. Mm-hmm. And how they, how they hire people, how they develop technology, how they plan out the engineering process, all that kind of stuff. And then in terms of the legal stuff, like how to negotiate different types of deals, yeah. that kind of comes more with experience. There's nothing you can really do just like... Sitting there, you know, on off hours to get better at it. You kind of just have to have a Spring. lot of experiences negotiating yeah. contracts and um, counseling clients on like what they should and shouldn't do in different transactional contexts.
1: In the side of someone getting hired and they're being given a contract, how do you determine that this contract is fair and it's not going to screw over long term? Because personally, I have been screwed over, <laughs> I've lost a like 60 grand stills men's beard, but um, obviously didn't get it. So uh, I guess how how, how can you kind of like avoid that? Um, That's a good
0: question. You want to definitely read closely the contract to make sure that it actually includes what you've agreed in a conversation with the person who's hiring you. You know, if they promised you a certain amount of money or some other things that are not in the contract, then you got to make sure it's in the contract. You also, you know, want to make sure that You're not necessarily getting paid the entire amount of the contract after all the work is done. Like it's smart to get paid, you know, something up front, something kind of like halfway through and then something, you know, less than 50% of what's owed. So maybe you want to get paid like 70% through the halfway mark of the milestones you've agreed on and then just get paid 25% at the end. Because that way you kind of minimize the amount of money that someone can just... Not pay you once you've given them the work product. Also, in the contract, if possible, you want to have the intellectual property or work product ownership hinge upon full payment for the work. So, and you know, again, like this kind of goes back to can you enforce this contract? Can you actually stop the buyer of this? work product from you from using it or can you claw it back from them somehow if they don't pay you but you do your best and you put what you can in the contract to protect yourself from not getting paid the full amount or from being able to like you know to give yourself the ability to take back the work product somehow or claim that they don't have rightful ownership to it and stop them from using it if they don't pay you the full amount also super important to have really clear standards on what is actually supposed to be delivered what are the deliverables? You know, what are you warranting and representing? Are you saying that this software is just going to work? You don't want to do that. Then mm. <laughs> it's pretty easy for someone to say, oh, it doesn't work. So you want to have some kind of objective statement in the contract of how is it supposed to work? And in you know, other disputes I've been involved in, what really saved the client was having a warranty that said that this software that we're developing for you is going to work according to the user manuals that we publish from time to time. And the user manuals would say things like, you know, this enterprise resources planning platform will, you know, store data and present a dashboard to the user. So the user can like see you know, how many hours people are working, whatever, stuff like that. Right. It's not like this is gonna be the solution to all your problems, or this is gonna make your business work well. Cause if you don't have definite language around how the software is supposed to work, yep. then you're leaving yourself open to the client at the end of the engagement saying, Well, it just doesn't work. So I'm not gonna pay you. And it probably does work, right? Mm-hmm. And they're just being, you know, they're just being greedy and selfish. Maybe not though, but you know, you wanna at least agree with them on what are you actually giving them and how is it supposed to work. That's very important.
1: Yeah, so I guess if they don't pay you at the end, the whole kind of strategy is get as much as you can early on or kind of throughout the thing before you give them the result, right? Yeah, yeah. You want to get paid substantially before
0: you deliver the final work product. It's tough because yeah. you know, you could you could you could misuse that too, right? You could say like, all right, I want fifty percent up front and then you just don't do any work and <laughs> Yeah. walk away, right? Like you could rug them too. <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the context of being the person who's selling the services and being engaged, that's, the, that's how to protect yourself is to get paid based on milestones, you know, yep. get paid someone up front. You could also try to use an escrow. You could try to use like a third party that would hold the money um, mm. in kind of a neutral fashion. And they just get, you know, they get like a, a message from the buyer that says, okay, the software's been delivered, now you can release the money. Mm-hmm. And if the buyer of the software or the services is unreasonable about it, then they don't have the money. The escrow agent has the money. So it's they're not going to get it back either, right? You're going to have to just go to court and fight over it. So that kind of changes the leverage and the dynamics a little right. bit. But I'm not aware of like any you know escrows that are just out there waiting to do that. But you yeah. can find one probably if the contract's big enough.
1: Yeah, like I imagine... Well, in my case, since I didn't get paid, um, like I had no, you know, law experience. I was pretty young. Um, I, think I was like 19 and, you know, I did this job for, I think it was like 160 K, but then at the end of it, you know, I didn't get paid like the 60 K and I was like, oh, well shit, what do I do? <laughs> Cause I had like no experience in like the law. I'm like, okay, well I just got drugs Cool. Mm-hmm. Onto the next, I guess. <laughs> I guess what the people do at that point, if they if there's like a certain amount of money, and they do get robbed, um, I guess there's not really many options unless you think it's worth pursuing, or it's just an expensive lesson, really. I mean, I've certainly had a lot of people come to me with
0: situations that sound exactly like that, and dollar amounts that are pretty similar, and usually we'll give it a try. You know, we'll go to the person who owes the money and say, "Hey, hey up! This is outrageous! Like, what are you thinking?" And sometimes they'll pay up. Sometimes they're just trying to negotiate a discount. But one thing, another thing you can do in your contract that's important is put a provision in there that requires them to pay the attorney's fees if you have to sue them and they lose. Cause that mm-hmm. then puts the, you know, the mm. risk of loss kind of more on them. Um, it yeah. changes the, the, the leverage dynamics quite a bit. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you got to go sue them to collect, they have to pay for that too. And then they think twice about, you know, refusing to pay you unreasonably.
1: Yeah. It kind of disincentivizes them to to do the rogue because if they know they're in the wrong and they get confronted, they're like, Oh, well shit, maybe this isn't really worth, um, in the long run. So yeah, it definitely makes sense. But I guess, I I guess with things like startups, you have instead of salaries, you have co-founders, Right then you have equity. So I guess, how do you deal with that as well? Uh, what do you mean by how do you deal with that? Like, how do you deal with what in particular? There's no payments, right? And we just talked about like the salary thing. You can kind of learn all this or prevent all the rugging in salaries. But then in equity with co-founders, people might get greedy, you know, or you know, grab the code, start their own thing or just like, you know, anything. And I guess if it starts making money, right? How do people uphold what's what the so deal basically
0: is. so how do you stop founders like if you're a minority owner of the company or you don't have yeah. to control the assets of the company like how do you stop founders from screwing you over yeah that's a good question so first and foremost like you want to try to do business with people that you trust who seem like moral people if you can that's always like the first place to start because you know all the contracts and stuff in the world aren't going to necessarily completely solve the problem the way you'd want them to that being said, some things you can do outside of just working with people that you trust are to make sure that everything that's being generated by the company, all the software, the intellectual property, the assets are all owned by the company that you own equity in, mm. that you're getting equity in. So you know, you don't wanna you don't wanna get like shares in a corporation that's a holding company, and there's a subsidiary that has all the the IP or all the assets and it's right. only like minority owned by the holding company. Like you want to make sure that the, the ownership of the company and it's like business and its operations and its assets are in the same entity that you're going to get equity in first and foremost. Right. And you know, if they're not, there might be a good reason for that, but you want to be satisfied that it's not like a nefarious reason that they're not just doing it to like give you illusory equity ownership. Second, You want to definitely get all your equity ownership documents and employment contracts hammered out and signed by you and the company before you start doing anything, if possible. Because, you know, so many times in founder disputes, I've seen people who were kind of like, you know, working informally, the founder would say, oh, yeah, I'm going to give you 5% to do this design work. I'm going to give you 5% to do this engineering. Mm -hmm. And, Then the number changes. It's like, oh, I can give you four percent, or I'm actually giving you fifteen percent. You're doing a great job, but it's all just in like DMs or whatever. That's not very helpful when you have to sue them later. So you want to get the you know equity grants, like the stock options or RSUs or whatever it is, actually granted to you. You want to make sure that they're being granted properly by the company so that like the board has actually resolved to issue the equity. You want to make sure that whatever employment contract you have reflects your real agreement and that it shows what equity you're supposed to have. Usually there's multiple documents involved. Like there'd be an employment contract and then some kind of an options award or whatever. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're all in one document. Sometimes it's less formal, but you know, under the circumstances, you want to do the best you can to get as much paper as possible. Um, you also critically want to make sure that the name of the company is on there. It's like, it's like the right company. Um, mm. It's the company that you're working for. It's a company that owns the assets. It's not like and that the person who's signing it is authorized to sign it. Because yeah, a lot of times, like people might not properly be the agent of the company you can actually bind the company. Um So it should be. A pretty high level executive or director or whatever who can who can actually bind the company.
1: How do you know if it is the executive or someone higher up? It kind of depends on the circumstances.
0: Um, you know, sometimes you can get companies to show you their resolutions and their organizational documents, like their bylaws or whatever, right? That appoint officers and delegate people with certain authority. But I mean, like you know, if if the stakes are high, you should just go find a lawyer because it's it's not that hard, right. it's not that expensive, and yeah, yeah. stuff. But uh, if you're just trying to do it yourself, yeah, ask for the organizational documents and, you know, just do your diligence, like spend some time looking at stuff, thinking about it, asking questions, Yeah, yeah. making sure you're getting solid answers, that type of thing.
1: Mm-hmm. And I guess how do you, what happens if kind of they move stuff around, like the intellectual property and so I guess like a different re, well, different kind of accounts or... I guess, yeah. And how do you find all the relevant information, I guess, like revenue streams or, you know, like ownership of things? Uh, I guess what, what if two of the co-founders kind of gang up on a single co-founder and increase their share versus them, you know, like how do you kind of go about that stuff? Well, it starts before you have the contract, right? You want to ask questions. You want to say like,
0: okay, let me see your resolutions. I want to see who, who owns this company, who set it up. Mm-hmm. what's the ownership, you know, what does the cap table say? Like, who owns what? Who's the majority owner? Who are the investors? You right. may not necessarily get all this stuff. Like, it's not It's not like yeah. if you're, you know, kind of like a relatively smaller player in the picture, you're going to get all this stuff. But this is how you would actually do it, right? You, know, you find out what the ownership structure is, find out what the organizational documents say, mm-hmm. find out what are the operations and assets of this company, you know, where are they found, whatever, Make sure that the company is not entitled to just like sell assets without a majority of the company voting for it or right. whatever. You want to get informational rights if you can in your contracts. So like rights to look at the books and records or rights right. to yep. know yep. when certain like material transactions are going to happen. If you have a lot of leverage, sometimes you can get a veto right on certain things, but that's kind of rare. But yeah, that that would be it. and And you know, just... Kind of like keep your ear to the rail, like Mm. talk to people in the industry. Maybe you'll hear through the grapevine that there's some transactions going to happen that you weren't told about. And then you got to ask management about it and see if, figure out if you have the right to stop it or how it's going to impact you. Um, But, Mm. you know, doing the best you can, like often people just end up getting screwed anyway. And (laughs) a lot of, a lot of technology founders like are just unscrupulous and they just take advantage of people and, and do wrong by people. And then mm. you're just stuck having to sue them. So, you know,
1: you do the best you can and
0: cross your fingers and hope you don't have to sue someone.
1: Yeah. It seems like it's all just like a, a trust game with all these contracts and whatnot. I guess there's still, it doesn't prevent it kind of mitigates in some ways, but the ultimate kind of resolution is trust the people we're dealing with. Um, make sure that people you want to be dealing with. Yeah. I think that's kind of like the main kind of mitigation technique, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, try to look them up, uh, see if they've been involved in litigation before. A lot of people who are starting tech startups are pretty young, so they might not have actually done anything that you could find out about before, but you know, look out for red flags, look out for like promises that sound too good to be true. And Mm. if they're, if they're like, you know, kind of like misleading investors to begin with, and you know about that. Like you got to mm-hmm. question their their moral compass. You know, try to spend some time with them in person
1: if you can, IRL. Maybe, yeah, you can build the rapport. Um, yeah. And I guess as like a a tech startup founder as well, what kind of contracts or things? you should put in place to kind of keep yourself protected, but also make sure that the people you're hiring are also satisfied. Uh, It's kind of the same principles,
0: you know, keeping the people that you're hiring satisfied means having expectations set the right way and Mm -hmm. delivering what you promise to them, giving them as much visibility into the company as you can without giving them visibility and stuff that they don't need to know and can't change, but will make them upset. You know, definitely like, The same as with what i said before kind of like doing diligence on them getting to know them a little bit um i would say that it's really important to me to work with people on kind of an informal basis for some like initial short period of time to see what they're like yeah because um you know if you just hire someone like off a website without ever talking to them and working with them you might quickly find out that they're just like impossible to work with and you don't get along with them Um, Mm, so mm And try to do like one or two projects on um, like a project basis before you commit to hiring someone and working with them for the long term.
1: Right. So just kind of have them in like a trial period informally and see how the relationship goes and all that stuff. Yeah. That you, you know. And then,
0: you know, for startup founders, for investors also, it's like really important to know who your investors are very well know kind of what their expectations are just on a baseline and then set their expectations reasonably don't do business with people who are like you know abrasive or like unreasonably demanding or predatory and like they really just kind of want to exploit you you know try to have like really clear some kind of really clear understanding in place of what you're going to do with the investment funds and what the progression of the company is going to be, the business right. idea and that type of thing. Um,
1: and, and when you're starting a startup as well, and you have no money to basically hire a lawyer, what what are kind of like the steps someone should take to, I guess, initialize this, this startup and with like the contracts and all that kind of things to uh, make sure they're safe until they get the money, right? Like they, maybe they raise really early. Um, and then they kind of yeah. all these problems. So how would you go about dealing with the early stages with no money? <laughs> I mean, if you have no budget for legal, I would try to keep
0: things as simple as possible. So just start a limited company or a limited liability company. Those are like really straightforward to operate and very inexpensive to set up. You know, keep all your accounts for the company separate from your own personal accounts. Like, so right. don't use your, your like, payment platforms and bank accounts and your personal name to pay for business expenses. And then in terms of contracts, I guess, you know, go on like LegalZoom or rocket lawyer and try to find the appropriate templates for employees and customers. Cause that's probably all you're going to have in the budget for legal. You're not going to have investors. Right, yeah. So yeah, you just got to make sure that you're, you're, people that you're doing business with either people you're hiring to do work for you or people that you're selling stuff to that you have some kind of contract in place that's appropriate under the circumstances that they've signed and that you signed and that you can find a copy of in case things go bad.
1: Yeah. And I guess also international as well. Like if you're a hire, if you're in one country and you're hiring from another country, is it kind of the same process or is there some extra step, extra steps to take?
0: Yeah. Um, there's immigration laws and there's also potentially that tax implications. So, you know, if you're in the U S maybe you can hire like an engineering company to design some software, develop some code for you on a project basis. But if you're just hiring someone to work for you on like a freelance basis, but they work for you 40 hours a week, Mm -hmm. you might be violating the labor law in their country where they're based. Like say, for example, if they're in Brazil, you're supposed to be paying like, you know, all sorts of different amounts of money to the Brazilian government for their pension, healthcare, and stuff like that.
1: Right, okay, that seems kind of a uh, complex.
0: Yeah, it's pretty complex. It's, it's difficult to hire people internationally without having legal in place to kind of like guide you through the right stuff. And in some cases, if you're gonna hire offshore, you have to actually set up a whole company offshore that, oh, okay. the, that the employees work for. Yeah, I mean, it's not that straightforward.
1: Yeah, because I, I can imagine like someone you know, is in the U S and they're hiring overseas and let's say like Australia or Asia or Middle East, then you have to deal with all those. Cause like everybody's basically working remotely now. So yeah, it sounds like a headache or even contracts. Can you kind of just say, okay, this, all the laws are based in like the U S and you have to adhere to this, but how are you going to enforce that? I guess. And how do you know that what their name they put down is correct <laughs> especially in crypto right like you just do anonymous names so that's Yeah trick. I mean it's difficult you know in crypto like in general people
0: who are overseas or who you're not dealing with face to face like you have no idea who they are really you might try to get some identification documents like a passport or you know right, yeah. KYC type stuff to confirm who they are try to put jurisdiction clause in the contract that makes sense. You know, maybe it's the U S maybe it's the country that they're based in. Maybe it's some other country, but the, uh, the best way to deal with disputes that arise between people in different countries I found is to use arbitration, like international arbitration, which is like a private court. It's a, you know, there are a few different companies around the world that, okay, do right. um, it's so like a middleman. I use the, yeah. It's like, it's like a court that you go to that you, used by contract. It's like a, like a private company that resolves disputes for you. Um, right, and those it. decisions are binding on you. Uh, so if someone tries to say, I don't like the way that came out, they can't just get away from it. Like they've agreed to it and it will be enforced in a court somewhere against them. Yeah. You're so you're to, and the, I was gonna say, I've used the, the international center for dispute resolution quite a bit, which the American arbitration association owns, but they have like multilingual, uh, administrators and stuff and it's
1: it makes it a bit easier to find the right person. Hmm. I guess it's also a good good to consider where they're based, and I guess the the relationship between your home country and their country as well. Like, let's say they're in yes. Russia, you don't want to probably not want to hire someone in Russia when you're in a US. <laughs> so, I
0: mean, it's going to be challenging.
1: Like, first of all,
0: you know, you got to consider whether you're violating sanctions somehow. Like. Yeah. If, if they're, you know, part of some organization that's, like, on a sanctions list, you might get trouble for paying them to do work for you. And, yeah, if you have some kind of legal dispute, you know, you got to think about, like, how am I going to enforce this contract if a court in Russia might just, like, not care about it? Like, I had that problem once where one of my clients has a famous brand and some people in Iran set up a domain that use their trademark, but with like a new top level domain. So they just kind Kind of of got in there and registered this domain name and they were using it to sell stuff that was pretty similar to what my client was selling. So we went to the, the world intellectual property organization and initiated a uniform dispute resolution proceeding a UDRP, which mm -hmm. is like the cyber squatting, like the universal cyber squatting thing where you Mm -hmm. kind of go and say like, they've registered this domain name wrongly. They shouldn't be allowed to have it. So we won at the World Intellectual Property Organization. But then Iran's treaty, when Iran signed the treaty for the World Intellectual Property Organization, they had a like a caveat in there that basically if anyone who was based in Iran lost a cyber squatting case, they could appeal it in Sharia court in Iran. So of course, you know, the people who lost who owned this domain did that. They filed the (laughs) appeal in Sharia court. And at that point, I was like, all right, like I think that our options are very limited to hire a law firm in Iran and like go in there and try to fight them in Sharia court. So hmm. that was pretty much the end of the game for them.
1: Interesting. And what what if someone like falsely, you know, sues you or just like summons you to court? I guess what what are your kind of options there?
0: It kind of depends on the context, but you know, usually cases that are wrongly filed that just have no. Mm -hmm. Like if someone who you've never had any kind of interaction with just sues you, I mean, first of all, it's pretty rare, but second of all, you should be able to go into court and get it dismissed relatively inexpensively. You should hire a lawyer. Like you don't want to just be kind of like dealing with it yourself. And if it's a company that you own, usually you can't represent it yourself. But yeah, that shouldn't be a problem. It's it's more of a problem when you're doing business with someone and they file a lawsuit that really has no basis, but they're just doing it out of spite or, (laughs) um, you know, they're trying to overreach you then those things usually kind of like drag out much longer and are more of a headache, which is why it's important to have good contracts in place is what you do this with.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I guess it's becoming even more prevalent with like deep fake. And I guess you can even, I I guess, images of Photoshop of like screenshots of messages. You know, you could forge someone's name in like a social media platform and kind of do that. So I guess that's when it gets... Very bad for the person on the receiving end. Yeah, I haven't seen anything
0: like that come up, but I can imagine it would be pretty uh, difficult to deal with, and maybe could confuse the court quite a bit and make it more expensive to get rid of.
1: Yeah, I think deep fakes are going to be a massive thing in the future of just uh, like falsely accused things. Like we've already seen it with like like deep fake oh. adult films of people and. Like politicians and people use it for advertising as well. It's crazy. Uh, so it's kind of scary as well. I can't lie.
0: Like, I have questioned things that I've seen on um, like social media or whatever as being deep fake before. So, yeah, it's already like starting to erode our trust in what we're
1: seeing. Mm-hmm. And especially since the whole system is trust based as well and subjective, um, yeah. it can be uh, quite scary if you're on the receiving end of it yeah 100%. so i guess at that point especially you have no money you're kind of screwed right or just kind of taken on the chin
0: uh it depends on the circumstances i mean maybe but i'm sure that that type of thing is going to come up more frequently in the future
1: so should be yeah. fun well it has been like an hour and a bit uh i would like to thank you for coming on i really appreciate this you've taught me a lot about law i don't know anything about it but now I have. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, man. Thank you so much for coming on. And hopefully people have learned some learned some stuff about law and setting up you know startups and contracting, all that stuff. If someone wants to get in contact with you, how, how can they do that? I'm pretty easy to find online. Uh, my law firm website is sprflp.com. Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, you just look up my name. I'm usually the first hit that pops up. My email address is on there. So anyone who wants can just reach out to me and I'll try to get back to you right away. Thanks a lot for having me. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And, uh, I just want to say that nothing that I've said in this interview has been legal advice to anyone. It's important that if someone has a specific legal issue, they should find a lawyer and explain that issue to them and then get, you know, specific advice in that regard. Mm
2: -hmm. But,
0: um, yeah, thanks for your time. And it's been a pleasure. And I hope that this is, uh, informative to people
1: yeah likewise it's been informative for me definitely and if anyone wants to have someone come on the show just dm me on twitter at scraping bits or email me at scraping bits at gmail.com but otherwise thank you so much peter for coming on and i'll see y'all in the next episode thank you to gadget take care